0: Jeff, you recently wrote a book, and I was wondering if you could tell me the title of it first.
1: Not effing around, the no bullshit guide for getting your creative dreams off the ground.
0: Okay. I like the title. Mm-hmm. But why
1: the title? Why the title? Well, it's straight to the point and it pretty much says what the book is about in one line. So yeah.
0: So where were you when you decided to come up with this idea and and was there something in your life that triggered that in you where you said, you know what, Jeff, this is no more NFA, which is I know your catchphrase, which mm-hmm. is really cool, mm-hmm. which anybody who hears it knows, okay, it's a kick in the ass, it means right. let's get going. Right. But did that happen to you? Did something happen?
1: Well, I, I have always generally been NFA in my life without knowing it was called that. Um, I've always been you know, pretty motivated and ambitious to do things, uh, mostly creative things and business ideas. Even as a kid, you know, I really got into music and, you know, played in lots of bands and got the four track and did that kind of stuff. I wanted to move to L.A. and become a rock star. I did move to L.A. Didn't quite become a rock star, but that's okay. Um, but this book happened sort of by accident. I had a free Saturday or Sunday morning one day and I coffeed up at a local Seattle coffee shop and I just started writing as I, you know, often do. And I wrote like one of the chapters or something in the book and when I was done I was like, you know, this would be a good idea for a book. <laughs> to just like empowering creatives. And what I realized after I wrote the book was that everything, not everything, but many things in my life were actually leading up to this book. So for instance, I have been a creative person my whole life, a musician, a filmmaker, a writer, a photographer, etc. But I've also been into empowering people my whole life. I was a music journalist where I was empowering you know, other musicians. I've been a teacher and I am a teacher of songwriting at a college up near um, Tacoma, near Seattle. Um, I have, I'm a life coach, right? When I'm life coach stuff, I practice something called NLP, Neuro Linguistic Repatterning, which is a, a talk therapy or counseling to help people untangle the subconscious blocks that keep them down in various different ways. So, after I wrote this book, I kind of thought about it, and I was like, you know what? This is the perfect. Like, this is actually my mission. It's like being creative and empowering people. But I didn't know that before I wrote the book. <laughs> Makes any sense?
0: It does. Yeah. Did you share the idea with anyone?
1: Uh, sure. Um, Initially. Yeah, a, a friend of mine, Steve. We came up with the term NFA probably a couple of years before I wrote the book. But we come up with lots of weird words and terms. Um, And then this one just kind of resurfaced. So it seemed like a good idea for a title.
0: At what moment did you say that you were really going to do this? Because we all like think of these awesome ideas, and then they last maybe like what a, a day, a week, a month, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially too what the book is about is actually doing something, not just talking about it. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> one of my favorite quotes is, "Between concept and execution, there is a land of shadow."
0: <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, that's
1: a good one. Uh-huh. Uh I forget who said it. There's another one that I love, which is. When all is said and done, there's generally a lot more said than done.
0: Very very true.
1: (laughs) Also very true. And
0: and maybe different in in the Seattle area than it is in LA, but yeah, yeah, LA is known for that.
1: (laughs) So when did I really gear into this? I think it was, it was sort of in that moment or in that time period when I realized that that this was really coming from a deep place within me, that both the creative side was coming out, and the empowerment and inspirational side. And these things came together in the book. And you know, the book is one thing, and you know we're getting that out and whatever, people are digging it. But I'm also doing lots of workshops. And this for me is actually more powerful because, you know, I already wrote the book, and <laughs> hopefully people read it, and that's great. But interacting with groups of people, whether online or you know in live situations, really gives me a chance to connect and you know obviously there's a bit more to it than reading a book like there's there's humans involved so yeah
0: well the, bro- the book has a lot of humor in it and uh, I enjoy the, um, the drawings as well mm-hmm. and you have one that's fairly um, uh, close to the beginning of the book where there's a guy sitting on his couch watching TV kind of slumped and depressed with like maybe a beer by him and, and I find it interesting because that is the acceptable form of recreation right and we've all probably fallen prey to it and it's mm-hmm. easy to go there mm-hmm. why do you think so many people reach for not just a beer or whatever we don't have to talk about addiction or anything right. but the the that safe place on the couch why is that so commonplace
1: because it's easy <laughs> right I mean it's easy to lay there and watch TV and click around and drink a beer or eat your ice cream or whatever you're into it takes energy to do things to do anything, <laughs> you know, whether you're gonna write your book or make your film or write a new song, or, or you know, any of, the, any of those creative things take energy, but here's, here's the difference. At the end of the day, when, when you're done watching your TV show, okay, fine. Maybe it was good, maybe it sucked, but that's the end of it. When you create something, that energy comes back to you. It doesn't come back to you with a TV show generally. That's a right? good point. So the more energy you put in, the more energy you have, right? If it's something that you actually genuinely love. Oh,
0: like yeah. Now you, you talk about this in the book, and forgive me if I'm getting too personal with it, yeah. but you said that during the time when you were going to go to high school or leaving high school to go to college, that you had a lot of people around you that you were close to pass away. Yes. And, and I'm wondering, did that was that part of that sort of NFA, Mindset that you adopted because you saw that people probably had best intentions and plans, and
1: it was definitely a very tough time for me. Um, You know, coming out of high school and and you know the world is in front of us, right? All that kind of thing, and then suddenly seeing that like, wow, this thing can end and has for you know several of my friends. It was it was a huge shock and. Um, a deep introspection to just know that the time is always ticking. We don't know if we're going to get another 50 years or another 10 minutes. But there is always a limit to this life as far as we know. So what are you going to do with it? And for me, that you're right, that was a time when I was like, sort of after I got out of that funk, I was like, okay, let's do something meaningful with life because it is a gift you know it's something
0: do you remember what got you out of the funk
1: Hmm. it might have been meeting the greatest guitar player I have ever played with this guy called Mike Schmidt um, in college I met this guy and you know lots of people play guitar and I played music with a lot of people back then and and now but Mike was an extraordinary musician like like ultra level and for some reason he he wanted to play with me and in a band and he taught me a whole lot not just about music but about life through music so the, the story that i remember that was really so so huge for me was at that time i would learn a song and play it right do a cover song or write a song but I went to to get together with Mike. I'm like, okay, Mike, what song do you wanna play? He's like, I don't wanna play a song. I'm like, what do you wanna do? He's like, just play, just play. I'm like, uh, and I start playing the bass and Mike starts carving music out of my semi-chaotic, erratic bass line and it was beautiful. And what I got out of that was how music can be open and free, which is similar to life, right? If the more structured you are, you know, there, there's great stuff in that. But if you if you can be free and loose with your plan, magic can happen. It's like a Grateful Dead song. You're you into the dead. Into the dead.
0: Well, I grew up in a town that uh, worshipped the dead. I grew up in Palo Alto, so yeah. Every year it would become a dead <laughs> festival, right, essentially. Right. Right. So. <laughs>
1: The dead sort of jam every night, right. it used to, and some nights, it was just a disaster. It was a sonic mess that <laughs> you just never, like, what the hell? And then other nights, it was music that was just so heavenly and divine, and like, how can humans make something so beautiful, right? right? But they have to step into that chaos, and they have to step into that possibility and just see how it goes. So that's kind of what I got from from Mike back then.
0: Jeff, you also have an NFA YouTube channel where you have uh, interviews with um, I think local artists in the mm-hmm. Seattle or greater artists, Washington artists, writers. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Um, I found a lot of them interesting. I watched uh, several of them, and maybe I'll have a few questions from there. But I'm wondering for the ones that you've done, is there something someone said in one of those that you were just like, wow? I mean, because doing this—it's a two-way street, you know—and yeah, I'm sure, sure. you probably felt the same. Sure. Um, was there something where you just got like struck, where like, whoa, that was just what I needed to hear in this moment, or?
1: Yeah, a bunch of times that ha- happened in those videos. One that comes to mind when you when you speak about it now—I and I forget who actually said this—but we were talking about the comfort zone, right? And the comfort zone is this huge thing, and people, including myself are so freaked out by the comfort zone. We love the comfort zone. We love to be comfortable, right? And this person said, you know what, here's what happens. You step outside of the comfort zone and you stay there for a minute and the comfort zone expands to you, right? So it's scary for a minute until you practice, until you do or be whatever this is outside of your comfort zone and then you get bigger. Right, and then you take another step, and then you get bigger. You take another step, and you get bigger. And I thought that was, uh, I mean, it's pretty simple, but so much of life is so simple. You just have to remember it, or frame it in a way that works for you. So yeah, taking small steps to become bigger, whether it's with skills, or education, or um, just desires and ambition, whatever it is. Just taking taking one more step that's Mm -hmm. scary until it's not scary anymore.
0: Well, before we um, had this interview, I just kind of finalized some of the questions, mm-hmm. and just a little self-disclosure: I experienced something where I received some news that was rejection, so I was kind of in this like negative mindset. And then I decided to finalize and listen to a- another one of your um, interviews, Great. and you were talking to a lady, Kelly Russell Agadon. Mm-hmm. Is that Diane? The- Kelly, yeah. sure. Yeah, she was awesome, and. She had a very nice style to her and she said something that in the moment was exactly what I needed to hear and it was about rejection and she quoted Sylvia Plath and said that Sylvia loved rejection because it meant that she was doing her job or doing her work. And I'm wondering what your take is on rejection?
1: Hell yeah! <laughs> rejection and failure are your are your best friends.
0: Why? Because it feels feels terrible in the moment.
1: Yes. Feel awful. It does. It does feel awful. Oops, sorry. Um, Who wants to feel awful? Nobody. But that doesn't mean it's not a bad idea.
0: And I'm wondering what your take is on rejection because it doesn't feel so great.
1: I don't want rejection, but I embrace it just like failure. Um, um, Failure and rejections are signposts telling you. That you're doing something, right? If you're not being rejected and you're not failing, you're not moving forward because no matter who you are or what you do, you will encounter rejection and failure. The difference is do you stop or do you move forward and learn something from it?
0: Have you always thought like that? Was there ever a time that you did let rejection kind of go to your head, and you and you ruminated over it.
1: Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> as much as I, you know, preach this stuff and attempt to integrate it into my own life, hey, I'm human, and I got smacked around, and it doesn't feel good. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes it gets in you, and you start to have self doubt. And you start to wonder what you're doing, why you're doing it, all these kinds of things. But the trick is to experience it, which is fine, and then let it go. And from there, you can move forward.
0: Another thing that Kelly said in your interview with her, and maybe we can put a link to it underneath this video because I recommend it for Mm -hmm. other people to watch it. Sure. She talked about working this corporate job and I think her dad was like a VP or he was a successful guy Mm -hmm. and she felt that pressure to follow. And then she just realized, I might be making a lot of money, but I'm not happy. Have you ever been in a similar situation where you realize that time for money equation and you realize that time was, was worth more?
1: Yes. Um, so I'm recently on to uh, a new thought, which I got from my pal, Tony Robbins. Nice. Right? Huge life coach guy. Mm-hmm. So, Tony has been hugely successful in his life. And he has a thing which he calls the science of achievement, okay? And he believes that you can figure out how to emulate people who have been successful. And if you do this, you will be successful. And it's, it's basically true. However, he also realized after many years, decades of doing this, that it doesn't matter how successful you are if you are not fulfilled. So that's the other part. That is the art of fulfillment, okay? So it's really important to remember these two pieces and keep them balanced. So for instance, um, in my former career doing music for film and TV, right? I did a lot of music I love music and you know, I was pretty successful with this and it was going well. And then at some point I realized, hey, my music my love my heart sorry my heart um, is now the background music for some dopey tv show so it was successful but it was not fulfilling and that is when i decided i do not want to pursue this anymore it's not fulfilling to me even though it was paying so i sort of changed tracks so there's a lot of you know depending on what you're doing and who you are What is your fulfillment and what is your success and how do you balance those two?
0: How did you decide to leave that? Because I'm sure it was uh, probably, you know, it it, it supported a lifestyle. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, How did I decide it? You know, (laughs) there's a lot of ways to make decisions. And the way that you make decisions will, completely inform the direction of your life. Okay? One of like the logical way to make decisions is to sort of put the pros and the cons together, you know, and just sort of decide based on a logical way to go. But that's only one way to decide. There's another way to make decisions, which is more of a heart-centered approach. Right? Which often defies logic but it is really what the core, of, it's the core of who we are and what we're about, right? What you love, what you know in your heart is way bigger than what your little brain spins around a million times in a row trying to figure out, you know, the, the sort of neurotic self-talk and all that stuff. Everybody's got it and it doesn't really do you much good. Most of the time, it's just a big spin in a circle. If you can make a decision, based on what your heart knows is true, you will align yourself with a higher purpose and you will make whatever decision you need to make and I suspect in many ways it will turn out for the better.
0: I know Steve Jobs I believe was quoted as saying he felt that getting fired from Apple before he formed NEXT was one of the greatest things that could happen to him at that time but he didn't realize it then.
1: Nobody realizes it, (laughs) (laughs) it hurts. Uh You get rejected, you fail, you get fired, you end up on the curb, whatever the deal is, nobody likes that stuff, it hurts. But the trick is, and Steve Jobs clearly understood this and, and many people do, if you can learn from your failure and learn from your rejection, you will step it up. That's all it is, it's your best teacher.
0: So you left LA and you're back in Washington. What was the impetus for that?
1: Moving to Washington, mm-hmm. I just needed a new new scene, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, needed some more green. I kind of like the rain. I, I mean, I do like yeah, the rain. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. beautiful. Up rain, there. It's rain down on beautiful. me. Yeah, there you go. I'll and you're a it. Who fan, yeah. yeah that's right. <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> but at what point? Because everybody talks about going somewhere else but a lot of people don't do it. Mm -hmm. What was it where you just said, it's time, NFA, I want to change the Mm -hmm. course in my life?
1: Well, one of the pieces was I was young, I was probably 24 or 5. So when we're younger, we have more flexibility, (laughs) I think, in our choices and in our lifestyles and things like that. So one of the things that I try to... um, you know, get across to my college students. I teach songwriting and recording to college students, which, oh, like, cool. that's a job. Are you kidding me? I love it. Um, but I try to get them to understand the power and flexibility of their youth. Because they don't really know it because they haven't been 15 years older yet. Right? They haven't been in the workforce and running around, they're just getting out of school or in school. Um, so that was a piece of it, being young, and not, you know, I knew where sort of where I wanted to go with my life, but it just seemed like a it seemed like a cool place, <laughs> yeah.
0: Another thing that I, I say a lot in these interviews, but I'm going to say it again, is that when you're 20, 24, people give you pats on the back and they give you "add a girl, add a boy, you can do it." When you're 40, they don't do that, and sometimes I think it's because. There's part of them that wants to do it and they can't and, and that's all a very real thing in the adult world. You have certain roles and obligations and so then you don't get as many added girls.
1: That's true. Maybe you can't drop everything and move to a different city but you always can do something and that is the key. right? a huge difference and you know you got to pay the rent and whatever the deal is okay I get that you know of course but if you if you want to be a screenwriter spend a half an hour a day or two hours on a Saturday or whatever it is a little bit of time and you you absolutely can do that it's just about prioritizing right are you watching TV or are you writing on your screenplay right I mean let's get real
0: Going back to the image in the beginning of your book.
1: Yeah. Are you going to the bar or are you practicing guitar? Right? I mean, there's a million ways to go. There's a million things that you probably don't need in your life. Do you have to play video games for two hours a day? Mm -hmm. Probably not. (laughs) You know, you can do something productive with that if you choose. Right?
0: What about that being the lonelier way? Because going to the bar. There's also 20 other people that can be part of what. then this isn't my quote. The "Ain't It Awful" Club. Uh-huh. It's from Peter McWilliams. He wrote uh-huh. a book, and 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 he said, "There's one in every workplace. There's one in every bar. And and it's great. You can commiserate. You can talk. We know politics is a hot button right now. But you go back home and you write that screenplay. It's pretty much just you.
1: It's lonely. It is lonely. Life is lonely, right? But it's yours to choose." So if you, wanna, if you want to be in that club, go ahead. But don't bitch to me about it, right? Or yourself, because we all have power, right? And perhaps it is lonely writing by yourself, but guess what? There's a million writing clubs out there, writing uh, meetups and things like that. Oh. So join one of those. That's true. And suddenly you're all writing by yourself, but at least you're at the same table. Right. I mean, I've done that a million times.
0: Is that why you're writing coffee shops? Or maybe you don't, I'm just assuming that. I do sometimes,
1: oh. um, sometimes not. Yeah, I mean that's, that's why half the people go to a coffee shop. In Seattle you will see 40 people in a room, four or five of them are talking to each other and everybody else is on the computer doing something. Why do they do that? Because they want to be together even though they're separate. And I mean, I'm not saying it's the greatest thing in the world, if you're together, you, you know, you kind of want to be together, but it's, it's something. So, I'm
0: a big fan of medium.com. There was an article recently by Scott Myers, and it's entitled Writing and the Creative Life Why Creativity Thrives in the Dark. <laughs> do you think that uh, people do their best work in the dark?
1: I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure what your metaphor is for the dark there, if it's literal or what, but. I think in Seattle, which is you know, I'm familiar with, it does rain a lot. It does get dark you know, in the wintertime and in the fall. And it creates an environment where you can't go out and run on the beach. And you can't, you know, I mean, people do you know, walk around in the rain all the time out there, and that's cool too. But I think it does foster an environment that says, yeah, what can we do inside? And there's a lot of writers. There's a lot of writing. There's a lot of music. There's a lot of art because that's what you do when it's dark, and that's okay.
0: You're not afraid of the dark. It's kind of magical. It's beautiful. Do Do you find energy from, from the dark? I mean, some I, people I think are afraid of it, and others.
1: Absolutely. the the You know, the dark. Um, <laughs> I'm going to quote the Tao Te Ching, Tao Te Ching. Um, darkness within darkness is the seed of the flower.
0: Oh
1: wow right So darkness is like this. It's just possibility. And if you can tap into that possibility and step into that possibility, it's the seed of the flower Anything is possible.
0: When you wrote your book, was there one part that actually was difficult for you because, you thought about it in theory, but then you really you know, there's there's things that we think we practice and we think we know, but then it kind of got you when you saw it on the page and it, it really stayed with you.
1: Well, I mean, the whole book is sort of like that for me in a way. I mean, I know these things, I incorporate these things from the book into my life. But, you know, occasionally I reread part of it and I'll be like, oh yeah. <laughs> I wrote the freaking book, and yet I still have to remember it. Like what? Like F the Ick, the inner critic, right? The inner critic is that piece of us, you know, it lives in everybody, and it says, you're no good, and you stink, and why do you think you should do this, and, you know, who are you? All that kind of stuff. If you let the inner critic speak, and it gets hold of your heart, it will take you down. It will destroy your creativity, it will destroy your energy, all that kind of stuff. And I sometimes get that and I have to remember that's just, you know, that's just a part, a piece, a voice in my head and it can be controlled, it can be turned down. And in the book I've got a couple exercises and things for that. So yeah, it's a huge one.
0: Regarding screenwriting, I'm wondering if you can talk about the power of intention And how a writer needs to check their own intention either during the writing of it before the writing of it afterward
1: sure so we're all a bunch of humans running around right and on some level we are all pretty much the same right biologically whatever however what really separates us is our experiences and our perspectives, because everyone, although similar, you know, American culture is similar. Let's say, we're growing up in a city, or growing up in the suburbs, or you know, these kinds of things. What you've experienced through your life, and what you're interested in, and what you're educated in, and things like that, that is what really gives you your voice, right? So, if you can tap in to what matters to you. And understand why it matters to you then you can write with power not only from your head and your imagination but from your heart if what you're writing doesn't matter to you it's gonna be flat it's never really going to emote but if you can tap in and understand what your gifts are what your perspective is what you believe then you can create characters and stories based around that, fictionalize it, you know, embellish it or whatever, however you do it, dramatize it, and then create within a narrative structure, you know, as a screenplay. And that is where great screenplays come from.
0: Would someone really though write and spend time on something that didn't matter to them?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it I think, happens, okay. I, I think I think people do. Um I think I think people chase trends. You know, oh, I don't know, romantic comedies are big this year. Let's write romantic comedies. Okay. Like, is that really coming from what you're passionate about? Maybe, but maybe not. Often, I also think screenwriters don't dig in deep enough to really understand where they're coming from, the pain and the, and the triumph that drives these stories, So continually digging deeper, asking yourself, why are you doing this? Why do you care about these characters? For instance, one of my uh, screenplays is called Panacea's Dream. It's about a shaman and a scientist who develop this pill that heals anybody. And they're making a fortune off this thing, and it works, but they don't know why it works. The science driving the scientist crazy and the shaman takes it on faith. It's, it's the power of faith in this pill. So this is a huge um, expression for me because part of me is like, I'm, I'm a scientist, I'm skeptical. I, I want to know, you know where things are coming from in the world. And the other part believes that this is a magical world where the metaphysics and the mysteries are everywhere, right? Both of these are within me, and then both of them are in my screenplay. Right? So, by digging into these kinds of questions, these kinds of truths, these kinds of subjects, a screenwriter can get a lot deeper into what they believe and then express it.
0: Why do you think that they haven't dug deep? Are they just not that self aware?
1: I don't know. I mean, <laughs> uh, There's all kinds of screenwriters. Some are going to be completely self-aware. Some are going to be completely clueless, (laughs) you know, just like people. Sure. But I guess I'm just suggesting that as you're considering what to write, these kinds of questions can really inform and activate and engage your stories and your characters. If they matter to you, they will matter to somebody else. And if they don't, not, they just won't.
0: Would you advise that a writer heal themselves through writing a screenplay, not journal writing or personal essays, but a screenplay? Shouldn't they be? Shouldn't they have had years of therapy or <laughs> a coach or someone before they really start pouring a lot of this out?
1: There's a lot of ways to do everything in this world. If <clears throat> therapy works for you, go for it if writing poetry works for you go for that however you can tap into your truth and express it will heal it okay so just by exploring and asking these questions and then putting it out whether it's through a photograph if you're a photographer or you know you know dialogue or scenes or whatever in a screenplay just expressing it helps get it out of your system helps it, helps you understand yourself really is a huge part of i think what creativity is about
0: from the writers that you've worked with have you seen a writer where you can just tell that what they've written is I mean, it's not just deeply personal it's basically life changing that they've written it and Maybe they're not ready to share it yet. Maybe they are, but you've you've seen, like they were almost shaking, in -hmm. terms of being around it, without too much information about the person, but how it changed them. Maybe.
1: Yeah. um, People are always, whether they know it or not, trying to work out their shit, (laughs) right? The level at which that intensity is depends on on how open they are, intellectually and emotionally. So by pouring that out onto the page, even if nobody else reads it, even if you rip it up and throw it away, it's still powerful for that person. It's not gonna be powerful for an audience if you rip it up and throw it away, obviously, but it's still cathartic to the artist or the writer. So yes, I have seen this kind of thing, I've seen it um, in screenwriting, I've seen it in music. My students again come in sometimes with these lyrics, and I'm just like, wow, this is serious digging into your depths to express. And I appreciate that and I applaud them for it because those are the songs that matter to them and to anyone who listens.
0: What do you do on days where you don't feel inspired?
1: <laughs> um Well, there is a time for in, in the book, I talk about this, there's NFA, and then there's FA. What's FA? FA is fucking around.
0: <laughs> what does that mean?
1: What are we, What are we doing? <laughs> fucking around is defocusing, getting off task, not worrying about all this like energy we're trying to put out to create a future to do the things we wanna do, things like this. So it can be taking a walk and exercising, hanging out with friends, it can be staring at the wall, meditating. For me, watching Simpsons reruns is huge for this kind of thing. Um, really, anything that steps you out of your life that feels good to you is, is fine. You know, as long as it's not self-destructive, it, it's fine with me and, and hopefully fine with you. But that said, if you're not feeling motivated to do something and you want to be there, that's different. And one way to approach this, we we sometimes think that inspiration creates or leads to action. right? You're inspired to do something, so you do it. But it's actually a feedback loop. Meaning, even if you're not inspired, if you start working or writing or doing whatever you're gonna do, that is gonna come around and inspire you, which is gonna make you wanna work more, which is gonna inspire you more. So either starting point will work, whether you're inspired or whether you just take action. Either way will work, but you have to do one or the other or you're just gonna sit there forever.
0: Have you had any times recently where you didn't feel inspired?
1: Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes this life is just, ugh, it's just too much. You just get knocked down. You get, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> right? Life is hard yeah. and it's tough out there in the world. And sometimes you do need to just take a step back for an hour, a day, a week. You know, depending on your situation, a year. You know, you hear these people who, you know, work in these crazy jobs, and they just had enough, and they disappear for a year, and they come back, and they've got it together.
0: Is it Eckhart Tolle? Mm-hmm. Did he sit on a bench for a year? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's I, I find I'm may have been mixing up his story, but I think that was he supposed to go to medical school or something? I forgot what it was. He was like 29. Was I don't, fa- fascinating.
1: I don't know, yeah, but I, don't know. I mean, I I think <laughs> his point is. Mm-hmm just be and you know for me i do a, a ton of meditation which seems you know to the modern american lifestyle like a waste of time what are you doing and i thought for many years it was like a waste of time but you sit there for half an hour and really clear your mind you're going going to be more focused you're going to understand more about what you're doing you're going to understand the bigger picture and you're going to be more directed by your heart rather than you know your brain flitting around up there So, Eckert knows what's up. I don't have probably not gonna sit for uh, you know a year. Okay. (laughs) And if I did, I'd bring a better cushion, you know. But yes.
0: Jeff, I believe you wrote an article for Script Lab, and I think in it you say failing is an absolute essential element of success because failure is actually feedback.
1: Sounds like something I'd say.
0: Oh, good. Okay.
1: Yeah, it really is. So, again, nobody likes failing. Failing is, you know, you're not getting to your goal or not doing what you want. But failure is an essential piece to success. And if you talk to literally any successful person in the world, they will tell you failure is their friend, right? Because failure happens, you know, something happens that blocks you from your goal. And the successful person, the smart person, will look at that failure and decode it. What can I learn from this failure? What didn't I do right? What could I do better? How could I approach this in a different way? What do I not want to do again? Right? And then integrate that into the next step when they are ready to move forward again. Yeah.
0: Are you willing to share anything that where you failed and and how it was actually a blessing? I mean I'm sure we've all had countless situations of being pushed out of something, mm-hmm. and it actually was probably for the better.
1: Um, without going into too many details, I've been pushing screenplays for for a while, and you know, wrote a bunch of screenplays, and you know, I think I'm pretty good at it. I've got some great screenplays, and you know, push them do these pitch fests, call these producers, all this kind of stuff. And as any screenwriter who's watching this knows, it's rough. <laughs> right? It is rejection after rejection after failure. And then you get a little bit. And then, you know, that goes out the window. Um, this was happening for years with me. And so I finally said, screw this. I am going to make my own short film. Okay. So I wrote a short film. It's called Mystic Coffee about a wise and magical barista. And I had $1,000. And I said, I'm going to make a movie. I'm gonna make my movie. So I hired actors, um, I got a crew together, I took you know, Henry Ford, the, the car um, guy's um, advice, which is hire people smarter than you, right? So I got pros everywhere on this thing. We get this thing going. I'm like, uh, wow, it's already cost $6,000 and it's not even half done. Ended up costing $11,000. I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. But I'm going to finish it, I did it, I made this movie, and I'm like, okay, this is pretty good, this is great, I'm re- I really like it. I'm going to send it to film festivals, okay? I put it out to all these film festivals, get shot down again, and again, and again, and again.
0: And more money, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> right, every time, you know, it's another hundred bucks or whatever to do these film festivals. So there I am, hanging my head, being like, wow, maybe I really do suck as a screenwriter and now also as a director and producer, right? I mean, I did everything basically on, on that on that end. And I'm really reconsidering what I want to do with this part of my career. And then I get a call. And it's a call from this woman at a place called Guy TV. It's an on-demand, oh, on yeah. mm-hmm. right?
0: Spiritually sort of, yeah, yeah it's great. Mm-hmm.
1: And she says, hey, we got a hold of your movie through somebody at a film festival and we love it and we want to do an international licensing deal with you. How oh, cool. i like, okay.
0: So wow.
1: now this movie has been viewed tens of thousands of times. I'm getting royalty checks, etc., cetera, et cetera. So I guess the point of the story is you never know where the end is. You never know what this failure is because, you know, the failure was first – I can't sell any screenplays. Then it was, oh my God, this is costing me 10 times, 11 times what I budgeted for. Then the failure was none of these um, you know, film festivals want my movie. That's like massive four major <laughs> failures in a row. And then guess what? Skipped all of those pieces to the win which is people are actually watching my movie.
0: Wow. A guy TV, that's pretty cool. Yeah.
1: Conscious media. hmm
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've checked out the site. It's
1: awesome.
0: Yeah. So I think this is part of NFA of your book. So forget being right, forget about achieving. Shouldn't we shouldn't we have an end goal for creativity?
1: Uh, well, should is a tough word. <laughs> you know. Um, we're shooting all, sh- <laughs> yes, all over ourselves. Yes, we're shooting all over ourselves. Thank you. Um, creativity, just like pretty much everything else in life, is whatever you want it to be. You can, you can have huge goals of the Hollywood blockbuster, and that's great, that's a big goal. Very few people every year, you know, out of everybody in the world, hit those, hit those kinds of goals. But your goal can also be just being creative. So I just saw this movie called Patterson a couple months ago. It's about a bus driver in Patterson, New Jersey, named Patterson, who is also a poet. And this guy just goes through his life, and he's got a little black notebook, and he writes little poems as he goes through his days. He's driving the bus or having his lunch or whatever. And it was so beautiful to watch this movie because it reminded me that The world is beautiful and lyrical and magical if you point your brain in that direction. So I copied my my buddy Patterson and got me a little black notebook. And now I'm running around with this black notebook and I'm writing a little poem every day. And I'll tell you what, it changes your mind. It makes you see and perceive the world differently. Right? It It makes your life into a poem. And that's fucking cool. Yeah.
0: I'm thinking of Charles Bukowski and how his daily life fueled a lot of what he wrote because he was very frustrated working at the post office and some of his relationships, I guess, were a little tumultuous. (laughs) Um, But do you think that's enough for a lot of people? Because then, once he did get this benefactor, or there was somebody that ended up hiring, you know, said, I'm going to give you $100 a month or I I don't want you to work there anymore. I want you to write and I'm going to pay for that new lifestyle. Do you think um, do you think that was enough? And do you think that'd be enough for most people?
1: I have no idea what's enough for most people, um, but what I do know <clears throat> is that you know we create our own realities, and if you must have success on this massive level, you're kind of asking for trouble because that's what I did, <laughs> right? I wanted to be you know a multi-million-selling uh, rock star. And I worked really hard for a long time at that. And I never got there. And that always created a huge amount of friction within my heart, within my soul, within my anxiety and all that kind of stuff. But you don't have to do that, that's just a choice. If your choice is to be creative because you love to be creative, just be creative. So I've got this new thing going I talk about on one of my blogs called the pure joy and it is literally doing something whether it's creative or not for the pure joy of it there is no other reason not to go on social media not to make a buck not to impress your friend all these kinds of things just to do whatever this is for the pure joy and if you can genuinely do that believe me it's enough
0: so was music enough in that sense or did you realize there were other things that actually brought more joy because you didn't have attachments to the outcome
1: i am fortunate enough that i love a lot of things and i love music listening to it and playing it writing it recording it all that kind of stuff i love teaching it of talking about it (laughs) you know whatever all these things um but also poetry i'll sit around and You know, write poetry or talk about the beauty of poetry or movies or screenwriting, all these different things. So, you know, for me, they just bring different elements of that creative puzzle together. And for for me, like I said, with this this whole um, notebook and Patterson stuff, I'm on this trip now where I'm just writing a poem a day, every single day, just because I love doing it, because it makes me Look at the world in a magical, poetic way. And that's what I want. I want to live in that world.
0: Was there a point with music, and forgive me, I don't know if you were in LA or where you were at the time, where you said, okay, this is not making me happy, even though the desired outcome was not just happiness, but A, B, and C, these results? And what day was that? Like, what was that like for you, that process?
1: I have had worked years and years, you know, so much time working on the band that it turned into a, like a solo project, a lot of, you know, recording. I, in about 2007, made an album which was electronic versions of U2 songs with female singers. Pretty cool. I love U2. Um, I love female singers, it's all this electronic-y stuff, which is my one of my styles. I got this thing together and I worked it hard and I got three international record deals. Wow. Big deal. This is something that I had been working on like basically my entire adult life. Great. Sign these deals, North America, Europe, you know, this whole deal. And then guess what? It was 2008, and we remember what happened then, right? The entire freaking world collapsed. Needless to say, and I speak about this in the book a little bit. You do. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a complete disaster, a heartbreaking <laughs> experience that tore tore my dreams to shreds. Like, all three of these deals went bust, okay, after you know, getting them after, after all that time. So I took some time after the aftermath of this thing, and I really thought about it and felt into it. And what I realized was, hey, although I didn't get the desired result, which is, you know, sell a lot of these things and get the music out there, et cetera, um, I knew that these were some of the best recordings I'd ever done. I loved doing it. I love listening to it, et cetera, et cetera. I got these albums back into my possession. I put them out and promoted them myself. And hallelujah. They're all doing well or the album is doing well on uh, you know, all the streaming services and iTunes, Pandora's had a million spins wow. of this thing. Very cool. So again, it's just it's it's like Keeping your power. (laughs) One of the biggest things that people miss, I think, in this life is understanding where their power lies. Right? There's really only three things that are under our power or control, and that is our action in the world, our reaction to the world, and our perception of the world. And if you place your power outside of those three places, you are giving your power away. And if you keep it within that system, you can always move forward. You can always grow. So it's a huge piece that I keep in mind as I move forward in my life.